Well, praise God for the voices that we have heard today to praise the name of Jesus and his birth among us. Thank you, Heather, for leading us with Noah's Ark program. Thank you, children. Thank you, parents, for your patience. I know some of you had to do some rehearsals at home also to make sure your children know the lines and they know the songs. Could there be a gospel without Christmas? Could there be a gospel without Christmas? Now, the belief that the Son of God became man is a key truth of the gospel message. God became man in order to save sinners. Christ was born in the likeness and nature of man in order to be the only mediator between God and man. Christians have rightly believed this for the last two millennia. Yet, two of the four Gospels do not give much attention to the birth narratives, to the circumstances relating to the birth of Jesus. Both Mark and John skip the details of Christ's birth. Well, over the next three Sundays, we will look at John's Gospel, a Gospel without the Christmas narratives. Not because the birth narratives are not important, but because what makes them important is who it was that became flesh. John's very first words in the gospel that he writes identify the one who became flesh by saying the following, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Unlike all human births, the one who was born at Christmas had life prior to his birth. And if he existed prior to his birth, why did he become flesh? Who is the one born in Bethlehem that 2,000 years later we continue to celebrate his birth? No other religious leader or prophet had received more attention for his birth than Jesus. Who is he that his birth has had such a rippling effect on human history, on human traditions, and human humanity's cultures that we continue today, 2,000 years later, to celebrate his birth? Well, John, even though not telling us the narratives of his birth, he helps us see the deep meaning of the identity of the one who was in a manger. The one who became flesh. And in the next three weeks, we will look at John's most three important descriptions about who this Jesus was. Um, John answers the question by giving three answers. Who is this man? Who is this person? Who is this identity who existed prior to his birth. Three answers. And today we'll look at the first one. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of Israel. Next week we will look at the second answer. He's the son of man. And two weeks from today, we will look at the third answer. He's a son of God. Now, these identity markers are not unique to John. All the other gospels point to Jesus being the King of Israel, the Son of Man, the Son of God. Yet John alone 
helps us in an unusual way to see the deep meaning of this Jesus and his identity. If I could pick, uh, paint a picture for you of what John is like in helping us see the identity of this Jesus, John compares himself, and this gospel is compared to the other gospels in a way a little bit like snorkeling. Snorkeling, you go and see some nice things under the water that you can't see until you put your head with, your, with some glasses and with some tubes in your mouth underneath the water. And all of a sudden, you start seeing some beautiful flowers and beautiful plants that are underneath that water. And John is, is a bit like that. You put your name under his gospel, you put your attention under his gospel, and you start realizing there's some beautiful truths about who this Jesus is. And even though we know these things from the other gospels, in John's gospel, these things are seen with so much clarity. But there's something else about this gospel. Just like snorkeling, you get a sense that they're, they're, they're so clear that they're so close to you and you want to touch him but when you when you reach your hand you realize they're way deeper than your hand can touch in the same way the gospel of john presents these identities of jesus with a clarity unparalleled by the other gospels and yet there's a depthness to it that we can only grasp not by our physical hands but by faith and this is what I would like for us to see in the next three Sundays today and the next two Sundays. The identity of who is this man? Who is this being who existed prior to his birth and he existed and he's existing prior to his death? Who is this Jesus? On this 2012 Christmas, let's look at the gospel without Christmas and the Christmas story that John is painting for us. And the first reality is Jesus is the king of Israel. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 1? Because this sermon is not from my own. It is from the word of God revealed to us. John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, it, it's a little red Bible, you may find this passage on page number 920. As you turn there, the next three sermons of this series uh, will be thematic sermons. Our typical diet at Park Hills is to go through expositional sermons, meaning that we go through larger sections of the Bible or even entire books. Actually, in 2013, we will begin a new series on the entire Gospel of John. But today and the next two Sundays, we will take a sectional look at this Gospel to examine all the texts that deal with the three descriptions of Jesus. And let's look at John chapter 1, our first passage for this morning. Verse 43 says the following. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come out of there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. 
When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. And then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven and open, heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Amen. This is the first word we will read today. Let's bow our head and ask Jesus to speak to us. Let his word reveal himself to us. Father, we thank you on this day for Jesus. We thank you for what we have heard already about him through the children, through the singing, through your word. Oh Lord, now we pray, would you open the eyes of our hearts and let Jesus be clear to us once again We pray that through eyes of faith, we may see him near. And we pray that through eyes of faith, we may see him and experience him in our own lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, in a world where kings and queens are primarily a relic of the past, or at best, features in children's stories, or in Hollywood's movies, the idea of, a, of having a king or of having a kingdom seems quite detached from daily reality. Honestly, the notion of a king and a kingdom is a foreign concept in helping us understand our daily experiences, right? Right? None of us dream of a time when America will become a kingdom with a king with absolute power. Right? Come on, independent American people. We are a democracy. We're not a monarchy. We don't ever envision our lives being better off if we had a king. Now, Texas is a little bit different state. But none of us in our daily experiences wish that kings and queens, princesses and princesses, princes and princesses would come back and actually rule over us. So this notion of having a king, honestly, has very little relevance for the way you and I live our daily lives, Monday through Sunday. And yet... The notion of kingship is a critical lens through which we are called to examine God's relationship to us. You know why? Why is it that kingship is a critical lens, a critical picture in which God, through which God wants us to see Him in relationship to us? You know why? Because unlike any other pictures, the notion of kingship encapsulates most closely the idea that God is our creator. 
He owns us. One of the key descriptions about human existence is that we are created by God in His image and likeness. And therefore, by creation order, we owe our allegiance to our Creator. And one of the many images God uses throughout the Bible to describe to us His relationship to us is the image of a king. And when Jesus came to His own people, He came as the king, as the king of Israel. So this morning I'd like for us to look at this picture of Jesus, the king of Israel. And we'll look at three brief ideas from this Gospel of John. We'll be going quickly through this Gospel. We will not stop to look at all the details. But we'll look at three points, three other texts in the Gospel of John, and then we'll draw some implications for us. The promised king, the misunderstood king, the rejected king. The promised king, the misunderstood king, the rejected king, and then for the final implications for us. In this passage we read in chapter 1, this first chapter of John's Gospel ends with a dialogue between Jesus and Nathaniel. Now, Jesus had already called Nathaniel's brother, whose name was Philip, and Philip went to his brother, Nathaniel, and said, Hey, guess who we discovered? Guess who we found? We found the guy whom Moses wrote about and whom the prophets wrote about. We found him. Verse 45, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now these words of Philip tell us that from the Old Testament, from Moses and the prophets, someone was expected in Israel. God had made promises to his people. Now, there are many promises that we could look at, but I'd just like to look at two this morning. Jeremiah, you don't have to turn there, just listen. Jeremiah chapter 23, the prophet told Israel, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Another prophet, Micah, chapter 5, says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So the Israelites expected an anointed king. Now, by the way, the Hebrew name for God's anointed king is Messiah. Messiah literally means in Hebrew, God's anointed king, a deliverer of God's people. The nation of Israel in the first century was ruled by the Romans. They expected a deliverer who would save them, but they did not expect simply a James Bond. A James Bond who would just get people out of trouble and then leave. Israel was expecting someone who would save them. And after being saved by this person, they would follow him on the throne of his father David. It was a kingship, a kingly rescue. And his king, this king that was supposed to free Israel, would establish a kingdom that shall never end. God promised David before he died, when your days are over, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, 
I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And in the dialogue with Nathaniel, this incredulous Israelite who at first could not believe that anything good could come out of Nazareth comes to realize in most plain terms Jesus' identity in verse 49. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Because God had promised in 2 Samuel that the King of Israel will be the Son of God. He is the promised king. Even though John skipped the Christmas narratives, very early in this gospel, John is telling us that Jesus is the expected king of Israel, which Micah and Jeremiah and 2 Samuel and the rest of the Old Testament have prophesied about. Not to assume that Jesus was only Israel's king, a kind of nationalistic figure limited only to the nation of Israel, requires some explanation for us, especially if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible. You may say this morning, what do I have to do with a guy who claims to be the king of Israel? So what? I'm in America. I'm an American. He can be the king of Israel. So what? For those of you not familiar with Israel's story and how that story figures and plays a key role in the world's humanity, let me start briefly from the beginning. The Bible begins with a story of our creation. God created everything, including the first man and woman. God made us in his image to reflect his character and his image. And part of reflecting God's image was the command to rule over the world, the earth. Because God is a supreme ruler, God wanted man to rule over the earth. God gave Adam and Eve the right to eat of every tree, with the exception of one, to show that he is the supreme ruler over everything. And Adam and Eve, instead of following and reflecting God's supreme rule over all creation, they chose to do the very thing God had told them not to do and act in rebellion against God's dominion over the earth. Man rebelled against God's clear command, ate of the forbidden tree, and therefore brought death into the world. And the entire creation, along with mankind, was cursed and corrupted by man's rebellion. And if you have a hard time believing that, just think of the last tragedy or trouble or trial that you went through. This world is corrupted by sin. This world is not the way God had designed it to be. But God had a plan. God called a man by the name of Abraham to leave his family and start a new nation so that by Abraham's nation, all the nations of the earth could be blessed. Abraham's descendants escaped to Egypt where they became a great nation, a threat to the Egyptians who enslaved them. And God delivered them by crossing the Red Sea and giving them his laws at Mount Sinai. That very nation eventually became known as Israel. In the book of Exodus, God describes this nation, his people, by a very unusual 
name. He says, Israel, my son. Adam was the first son of God because Adam was supposed to reflect God as a son. But Adam failed. So now God has a plan. He's going to bring about a nation, and collectively that nation is going to reenact the story of Adam. And it's going to do something about the rebellion of Adam. That's why Israel in the Old Testament is called the Son of God. And then, of course, we know the story of how David came to the kingship of the throne, and God declared that this king over this nation will be God's son. But as we know the rest of the story of the Old Testament, Israel, even though was called to undo the story of Adam, Israel itself failed to live out God's plans for this son. And it was only later, much later, that God called another king to the throne who will relive not only the, sta- the story of Adam but also the story of Israel so that this new king will finally establish the nation that God had designed and hoped which would be a blessing for all the earth, for all the kingdom of the earth. And this king, the king of Israel, when he was designed to come on the throne, his kingdom and dominion was not only for the nation of Israel, it was designed for the nations of the world so that people from every tribe and language and ethnicity would come and worship this king. So Jesus is a promised king of Israel, but his reign will be over the entire creation because after Adam's fall, God's kingship over his creation was going to be revealed through the story of Israel, and Jesus is the one who is reliving the story of Israel. Jesus, the promised king of Israel. Point two, Jesus, a misunderstood king. In chapter six, you don't have to turn there. Chapter six, Jesus creates the, the, the story uh, of the multiplication of bread in the desert. And after he performs this miracle of feeding 5,000 people in the wilderness by having only five loaves and two fish, at the end of that story, John tells us an insight into Jesus' knowledge of what happened to the people who saw that miracle. John 6:15 says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The Jews were under Roman governance. Just like Moses, the prophet led the people out from slavery to Egypt and then fed them in the wilderness through the manna, now this, this people sees this prophet able to feed 5,000 people in the desert. And he's like, my goodness, he's a new Moses. He too, just like Moses, can lead us out of slavery. Let's make him king. But Jesus knew that they were going to make him king by force. So what does he do? He goes to pray. He withdraws. He goes to a mountain to pray. Next day, these Jews were following him. They finally found him, and Jesus addresses them the next day. And here's what we have in John chapter 12, in John chapter um, 6. He's telling us that the miracle of making bread in the desert and feeding them all is not pointing to the multiplication of food of the manna in the desert in Moses' time. 
that feeding is pointing forward to his crucifixion when he will be the bread of life who will give life to all who are hungry. Jesus is the new Moses, but not by looking back at the wilderness in Exodus, but by looking forward to the crucifixion because Jesus is going to be the true bread broken for them. The Jews wanted to make Jesus king because he acted like a new Moses. But for Jesus, kingship is not manifested by force. This is clearly displayed in the final trip Jesus makes to Jerusalem in chapter 12. The next day, we're told, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus entered Jerusalem on his final trip, described as king of Israel. Yet he came not on a horse, but riding a donkey a symbol of bringing peace. He entered Jerusalem as a king, not to weld the spear and bring judgment, but to receive the spear thrust and bear the judgment. And it was by receiving God's judgment that Jesus brought us peace. Jesus had been perceived as the promised king of Israel, but his kingship had been utterly misunderstood. Then and now. And because it has been misunderstood, the nation of Israel has rejected him. So we have a promised king, a misunderstood king, but a rejected king. The, king, the theme of Jesus' kingship is nowhere more clear than in John's account of the Passion Narratives. Up to this point in the Gospel, Jesus' kingship was affirmed only by others. In chapter 1, by Nathaniel. In chapter 6, it was affirmed by the crowds who ate the, man, the food. In chapter 12, it was affirmed by the crowds that were laying palm branches as Jesus entered Jerusalem. But in John chapter 18 and 19 is the first time when Jesus claims a kingship for himself. John chapter 18, we hear the following. Pilate then went back inside to the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now, my kingdom is from another place. It is only now, before the cross, that Jesus speaks plainly and openly about his kingdom and about his kingship. And the first thing he says about it is that it is not of this world. Israel had hoped for a king who would establish the ethnic and nationalistic kingdom. But the radical message of this king of Israel is that his kingdom is not of this world. Even though labeled king of Israel, Israel is not the source of his kingdom. His kingdom does not rise up from below, but comes down from above. That is why earlier in chapter 3, Jesus told one of Israel's leading teachers that if anyone wants to see the kingdom of God, 
He must be born from above. Nationalistic ties and ethnicity is no longer a sufficient criterion to belong to God's kingdom. That's what, that is what makes the Gospel of John such a powerful window of seeing the kingdom of the one called the King of Israel. His kingdom does not belong to this earth. And the citizens of this kingdom are not born by human will or decision or human ethnicity. They are born of God. Their birth is this in this kingdom is given as a gift from above, freely of grace. It's not something that we work up. In John chapter 19, we're told that it was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. And listen to the leaders of the nation who were expecting the promised king. Listen to their answer as they give to, to, to Pilate the following claim. We have no king but Caesar. The nation that was expecting the promised king to come and deliver them from the Romans, now through the chief priests, are enslaving themselves of free choice and saying, we have no king but Caesar. You know why? Because this king has been misunderstood all along. You know why? Because people cannot recognize this king unless their kingship is given from above, not from below. The irony in John's gospel is that the religious leaders of Israel, who, was, who were supposed to expect the coming of the promised king, end up rejecting him and affirming their own slavery. But friends, it's not simply Israel who rejected its king. The story of Israel is a story of Adam. It's a story of humanity. The story of Israel is our story. Starting from the Garden of Eden, mankind chose to rebel against God and follow instead its own desires. So what are the implications for us at this Christmas? Let me look briefly at some implications for us. If Jesus is the promised King of Israel, if Jesus is the misunderstood King of Israel, if Jesus is the rejected king of Israel, what does that mean for us? Friends, Christmas is a celebration not simply of a baby born in a manger, but of a king. Christmas is a celebration not simply of a baby born in a manger, but of a king. Christmas is the breaking in of God's kingdom into our own kingdom and among the kingdoms of the earth. But unlike so many of the kings of the earth, he's a good king because he suffered for his people and even died in their place. He is a gracious king. If the baby born in Bethlehem is a, is a king, then God especially requires the subjection of the soul and conscience as his proper throne. At this Christmas, friend, be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. Is your heart, your life, a place where Jesus is king? Or are you still rebelling against him, 
doing your own thing, making choices that are purely about you? Be honest with yourself at this Christmas. If you are excited about his birth, are you excited about his reign too? Do you desire it? Do you desire to relinquish your own rights for his rights over your life? At one point when Jesus invited people to follow him, he used the imagery of a yoke. And he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Friend, if you have never experienced the reign of Christ in your life, God is calling you today through this, this very word that you have heard, through the program that you have seen today, through the story of the children of Noah's Ark that have given us the story of Christ's birth, recognize that you have run away from God. Or search in the wrong places, seeking to live your own life for your own purposes. Acknowledge your rebellion and neglect of your Creator. Turn away from your sin and trust that Christ alone who was born in a manger and who suffered as a suffering king, paid the price by dying on the cross. And that he was raised to life so he can make you right with God and bring you into the kingdom of his Son. This is the word of faith that we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is king, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe with your heart, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as King, you will be saved. That is the great news of Christmas, that we can be made part of the kingdom of God. And if this is your desire, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. I would encourage you to talk to anyone about this desire for you to confess Jesus as King of your life. For those who remain hostile to the kingdom of God and to its King, Christmas is a message of threat just as it was for King Herod. King Jesus is a threat to our kingdoms, to our rights to rule our lives, to our self-centered, self-worshipping desires. His kingship has a claim over our lives, and some of us are not willing to give it up. Yet a day is coming when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Friend, on that day, it will be too late to change allegiances. But for those who have responded to the King Jesus in this life, his incarnation is a time of great joy because he had come among us gentle and humble, actually so humble that some people don't take him seriously. But he brought to us another kingdom from another place and actually came to make us his kingdom, a kingdom that will have no end. Some church traditions call this time, the four weeks before Christmas, the Advent. It's a time to prepare ourselves to celebrate the coming of the King. But friends, let us celebrate His coming, not simply with sentimental memories of the past, but with the expecting longing of His future, future final coming. At Christmas, we sing that beautiful carol, O come, O come. Emmanuel, to rescue captive Israel. Friends, let's sing that song at this Christmas. Not simply putting us back in, the, in time in Israel's place, but let's sing it today, 
expecting the future coming of this king because he will come again. He will come again to put an end completely to sin, hatred, rebellion, selfishness, disease, injustice, fear, and to take us to himself. You know what this means? It has one major implication for you and me. If he's coming back to bring the full consummation of his kingdom, it has the following major implication. Your best life is not now. Your best life is not now, but is still coming. You will never live to your full potential because your best life is not of this world. It is not about staying healthy, wealthy, and happy, but about, faithful, about being faithful and holy because we will inherit something far better than what this earth can ever give us. At Christmas, we celebrate the inbreaking of God's kingdom in our world. But let me finish with one final implication for us. Christmas is not the full consummation of God's kingdom. It is merely the arrival. It is merely the already but the not yet of his full power. This means that at the moment, we live in tension between this world's kingdom and God's kingdom. We live on earth still praying for the full coming of God's kingdom. We live in a world of trouble, yet following a king who has overcome, even though his victory is still so unevident to so many. You may ask, how does this already but the not yet of his kingdom affect me daily. This week I read about the story of a certain lady called Debbie. And I want to conclude with this story because it, it's a beautiful picture of the implication of the already and not yet of God's kingship over us. Here's Debbie's story. Debbie describes God's work in her life in the following way. I was struggling with my faith in Christ for several years before my diagnosis. I prayed to have the faith of a little child again. I read, I researched, and I tried to make myself believe. The problem is that you cannot make yourself believe in Christ. It is purely a gift. And God gave me that gift with my first cancer diagnosis in December 2008. And the following chemotherapy treatments and radiation through 2009. Then in 2010, during my battle with my first brain tumor, and first set of my partial brain radiation treatments, he spoke to me, told me that I was his, and filled me with the Holy Spirit. I learned more about finding true joy and contentment in all circumstances. In November 2011, with a diagnosis of a second brain tumor, followed by two brain surgeries and a second round of partial brain radiation treatments, along with surgery to remove a tumor in my lung, he taught me yet more dependence on him. But still, this wouldn't be enough to bring me to where my soul needed to be. This past April, I got the diagnosis of four more brain tumors, now on the left side of my brain, followed by 12 whole brain radiation treatments. It took this battle, this last battle, to completely humble me, to make me understand my complete dependence on God. I finally feel I'm on the road to the daily conversational relationship with my fa Heavenly Father that I've always strongly desired and envied in the few people I've seen who truly have it. 
It's been worth every day I have suffered. God has been weaving a story in my life. When I thought he was refusing to answer my prayers and refusing to show himself to me, he was just standing on the edges, but never gone. He knew the full picture. He cares about my soul. Friends, what medicine or power of this world can make someone respond to these circumstances in this way? How could Debbie, in the midst of great physical pain, in the midst of even greater emotional pain of slowly saying goodbye to her husband and her two young children, how could she respond in this way? Where is the power coming from to look at death slowly coming and still trust in God's goodness? For Debbie, King Jesus became more real than ever before. And that's what made all the difference. Jesus, before his death, when he told his disciples that he is going to die, he told his disciples, I have told you these things, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world because Jesus is king. He has overcome the world. Even though at Christmas our King has come, we are still subjects to the effects of a broken world with diseases, hatred, rebellion, wars, injustice. And as much as we want to escape these circumstances, King Jesus manifests His dominion in our lives and hearts by bringing us a peace that comes from another world. A peace that this world cannot understand because Jesus King Jesus has overcome the world through his own suffering, through his own rejection, so that he can give us peace. His throne is not only in heaven, but also in our hearts, so that his dominion can be experienced even by us, even by people like Debbie. Do you know this king? Have you experienced his reign in your life? Have you experienced his gentle but powerful dominion in your life? At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of the King of Israel. May he be praised. Let us pray.